2022 SBC Pastors Conference in Anaheim, California, 12 pastors led us through Colossians verse by verse with the theme, We Proclaim Him. We also heard six homilies that dealt with topics such as problems pastors face, spiritual issues, mission involvement, evangelism, doctrinal fidelity, and practical church issues all of which were topics envisioned by the late M.E. Dodd, who founded the SBC Pastors Conference in 1935. Tune in and be encouraged as you make your way through Colossians and other practical messages from the 2022 Pastors Conference made possible in part by Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. you to take your copy of God's Word and find Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, the first, I should say the last 12 verses of this wonderful epistle by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. I have been attending the Southern Baptist Convention pastors' conferences since I was a young pastor right out of seminary, my wife Kim and I attended our first one in 1976 in Norfolk, Virginia. Adrian Rogers was the pastor's conference president that year, and we got to hear from R.G. Lee and W.A. Criswell and other great preachers, which makes me wonder why am I standing here tonight? <laughs> I never expected to be invited to preach at this pastor's conference. And when President Matt Hensley called me last summer and invited me to preach, I was excited. He told me we were gonna be working through Colossians. I was excited. And he told me, I want you to preach the last 12 verses. And then I was not excited. <laughs> There are names here that, with which I'm not very familiar. They're difficult to pronounce. And I told him I need to pray on that. And I prayed for the next week and uh, felt impressed of the Spirit of God to accept his kind invitation to preach tonight. Now, I was hoping that he would let me preach Colossians 1, 15 through 20, or some other portion of the letter, but this is my assignment. And may I say to you that I'm excited to work through this text with you tonight. The Spirit of God reminded me that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Colossians 4, 7 through 18 is just as inspired as is Romans 8 or John chapter 3. And there's much here for our edification tonight. I have discovered as I've worked in this text that this is a very talkative text. And I pray the Spirit of God will give me grace to make that clear to all of us tonight as I seek to expound this passage of God's Word. With our Bibles open to Colossians chapter 4, would you follow as I begin reading with verse 7. Tychius will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. 
I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Aeropolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church and in her house. And after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand Remember my chains, grace be with you. And so what we have here is a list of names. Three names with which we are quite familiar. There's, of course, the name Paul. In verse 18, we see that Paul was the writer of this epistle, and he concluded it in his own hand, and he's writing from prison, Remember my chains. And then we recognize readily the names of Mark and Luke because of the Gospels that they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that bear their name. But these other names are not very common names to us. I mean, we think of the great heroes of the faith. We think of that roll call of men listed in Hebrews chapter 11, like Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Joseph and David and Samuel, or we think of New Testament giants of the faith like Peter and uh, John and Paul. But these other names listed here in Paul's concluding portion of his letter to the Colossians are not familiar to us. We name our sons Paul or Peter or John. We don't name our sons Tychius or Aristarchus. I mean, do you know anybody named Onesimus? Or do you know anyone named Epaphras? Or do you know anybody who knows anybody named Epaphras? I don't. And yet, these are God's people. These are God's saints. Little known saints for sure. But I want to suggest tonight that all of the lists in this concluding portion of this letter to the Colossians are significant saints of God. In God's kingdom, there are no insignificant saints. In God's kingdom, there are no insignificant churches. And in God's kingdom, there are no insignificant pastors.
Now, before we work our way through this text, hold your place here and find quickly uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 18. And I want you to see there that the Apostle Paul spoke to this very issue when he wrote to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 18. As Paul wrote about the church as the body of Christ. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Now, let's go back to Colossians chapter 4. I want you to think with me tonight about this, this subject. Partners in gospel ministry. No insignificant saints. I believe that what we have here... here is a list of Paul's friends, fellow gospel partners who are serving with Paul. And I want to suggest tonight that none of these individuals were insignificant. Maybe not as well known as the great heroes of the faith, but all very vital to the advance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, first of all, I want us to look in verses 7 and 8 and just examine the significance of this man, Tychius. I believe that the significance of the life of Tychius is found in his faithful service. In verses 7 and 8, we read that Tychius will tell you the news about me. Tychius was the one who would deliver the letter to Paul excuse me, from Paul to the Colossians. And so he was Paul's mailman. He had firsthand knowledge about how Paul was, and he was delivering that message. And we also read in verse 7 these uh, words that describe Tychius to us. Paul says that Tychius is my dear brother. He's a brother in the Lord. Second, he's a faithful minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And third, he's a fellow servant of the Lord. Now, as far as we know, Tychius was no orator or scholar, and yet he was a brother in Christ and a servant of Christ. And he was a man that had the confidence and the trust of the Apostle Paul, so much so that he entrusted to him the responsibility of delivering the letter to the church in Colossae. And he proved to be trustworthy, and thank God that he did, for had he not been trustworthy, we would not have this portion of Holy Scripture for our blessing today. Paul told the Corinthians, now it has been required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Antichius was a faithful messenger, a faithful servant of Christ. In verse 8, we read the purpose of Tychius here. Paul says, first of all, I'm sending him to you for the express purpose 
that you may know about our circumstances. He wanted them to know that he was in chains and how he was doing. And then second, in the latter part of verse eight, that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul was concerned that they be encouraged and he trusted Tychius with that responsibility. Now, it's a cliche, but it's often, it's true. Oftentimes, our greatest ability is our dependability. And we can say of this man, Tychius, of whom we know very little, that he was a faithful, dependable servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second name we see in verse nine is the name Onesimus. Now, you'll remember the story of Onesimus. Uh, he was a slave in the household of Philemon, and he stole from his master and he fled to Rome, and apparently somewhere in Rome, we don't know where, perhaps the direct influence of the Apostle Paul, perhaps the indirect influence of the Apostle Paul, he came to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and apparently was being discipled by the Apostle Paul to become valuable to Paul, and Paul, you know, sent sent Onesimus back to his master, uh, not as a runaway slave, but now as a brother in Christ. He'd been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see here in the life of Onesimus is the significance of reconciliation. For Onesimus was a recipient of the reconciling grace of God. First, when he heard the gospel preach, he was reconciled to God. He's the testimony of God's amazing grace. And it reminds us that this runaway slave, this thief, is, uh, could be transformed by the power of the gospel. And no one is beyond the transforming power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is in the reconciling business. And not only was he reconciled to God, but Onesimus was reconciled later uh, to his master Philemon. We can read of that uh, in the letter that bears the name of Philemon. And uh, so uh, to be reconciled to God is to be reconciled to God's people. Uh, it, it is an oxymoron to, to, to live with, in broken fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ while at the same time proclaiming ourselves to be in right fellowship with God. They go together. There is the, both the, the vertical dimension, reconciled to God. There is the horizontal dimension. We are reconciled to all our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't harbor hostility. We, we don't harbor bitterness. We don't harbor an unforgiving spirit, though we've been abused and mistreated. We show love even to our adversaries. And so we, are, we have been given as pastors the, the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. And he has given to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making this appeal through us, be reconciled to God and what our communities need and what our nation needs and what the world needs is to experience the reconciling grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the answer in the gospel of reconciliation. The third name we see here in this uh, 
closing greetings from the pen of the Apostle Paul uh, in verses 10 and 11. It's not one name, but three names that I'm putting together, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justice. And the significance of these three names, as I hope to make clear to you, is the, the ministry of cross-cultural witness, the significance of cross-cultural ministry. Now, before I elaborate on that, let me just give you just a, a bit about Aristarchus. He was a traveling companion of Paul. And at the time Paul penned these words, Aristarchus was a fellow prisoner with Paul imprisoned in Rome. Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. We, we learn here his, he was the cousin of Barnabas. And you'll remember from the book of Acts how Barnabas and, and uh, Paul set forth uh, on that first missionary journey. And uh, there was... Uh, uh, Mark who joined them, but he deserted them and, and went back to, to Jerusalem. But at this time, Mark has been restored to the apostle Paul and he is with him in Rome. And then the third name, Jesus Justice, we know very little, only what's mentioned here. Jesus is his Jewish name, Justice is his Roman name. But here's what I want you to see. If you'll look uh, in verse uh, verses 10 and 11 again. Look down in verse 11. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers in the kingdom of God. So here's Paul. He's in the imperial capital of Rome proclaiming the gospel. And uh, he's, he's, he has all these partners in gospel ministry. They're for the most part Gentiles, but there are three there who are Jewish. Aristarchus, Mark, and justice, Jesus' justice. And uh, these three had clearly crossed ethnic and cultural barriers in proclaiming the gospel of salvation. Now, there's an example there for us of the significance of cross-cultural ministry because Jesus said before he ascended back to heaven, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, we all know that that term nations doesn't mean political states like Japan or Brazil or Russia, but it is the ethnic, ethno-linguistic groups that make up our world. And uh, there are, according to the International Mission Board, 11,960 nations that make up the human mosaic on planet Earth. And of these 11,960 nations, 7,327 of them are unreached. That is, they are less than 2% evangelical Christian. That's 4,682,000,000 people with little to no access to the gospel. And the Lord God has commissioned his church and he has commissioned his under shepherds, those of us who are pastors, to make disciples, not only within the confines of the city limits or the county line, but to all the nations of the earth. Now, you and I both know that most people, most Southern Baptists, are not called to go to the nations for a lifetime, but all of us are called to be Great Commission Christians, global Christians, if you please, 
All of us can pray for the nations. All of us can give financially of our material wealth to fund the gospel advance. And all of us can send out those whom God has called to go. But I want to suggest tonight that unless our health prevents us, all of us can go for a week or a month or longer and serve on some part of the world where there's vast lostness of humanity. Now, you may be saying to yourself, I understand how large churches with much financial resources can do that. The church I serve is very small. We have very few resources. I wanna, I wanna tell you tonight about Benton Baptist Church. There are a few churches in the Southern Baptist Convention that are smaller than Benton Baptist Church. There are 46 members of Benton Baptist Church. Benton, Alabama yeah, has a total population of 41. So they've drawn beyond the village. 46 members in uh, the year 2008, Lee Tate was called to be pastor of Benton Baptist Church in the last 13, 14 years under the spirit-filled leadership of Pastor Lee Tate. 30 of those 46 members have gone to 14 different countries around the world bearing the message of salvation. This past Christmas, the members of Benton Baptist Church gave $47,000 to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. If you do the math on that, if every Southern Baptist Church gave it the same per capita of the Benton Baptist Church, last year, our Lottie Moon offering would have totaled 14 billion, that's with a B, $300 million. Furthermore, the members of Benton Baptist Church had planted another church nearby. How has this happened? Because of the leadership of Pastor Lee Tate. He continually has had missionaries to come and speak from the pulpit. In fact, he's had 33 different missionary units in the pulpit 62 different times in the last 14 years. This small church has a worldwide impact. They have their own little community there, but they have a, an outreach that extends to the ends of the earth. Cross-cultural ministry is the heart and soul of the Great Commission. It's just not winning our friends and neighbors to Christ. It is that. But it's every nation, every ethnic group, every tribe, every tongue. God give us pastors who will be leaders to mobilize their churches to be global Christians to take the gospel to all the nations. Then the fourth name we see in verses 12 and 13 is the name of Epaphras. And here we learn the significance of intercessory prayer. You'll look again in verse 12 and 13. Paul says of Epaphras, he is one of you. The fact of the matter is he was the founding pastor of the church in uh, Colossae and uh, Apparently, he had gone to Rome to receive counsel from the Apostle Paul about how to deal with the false teaching that Paul has addressed earlier in this letter. 
And so we read here that uh, in verse 12, that uh, Epaphras, one of you, a servant of Christ, sends his greetings. Then this is what Paul describes Epaphras. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Epaphras was a man of prayer. He prayed constantly because he was always praying. He prayed fervently because when he prayed, it was as if he was wrestling with the powers of darkness. He prayed personally because he prayed, Paul said, for you. He prayed specifically that they would stand firm in the will of God, and he prayed earnestly because he was working hard for the Colossian believers through his prayer. Think about that. Here is the founding pastor, Epaphras, and he's a thousand miles to the west of Colossae in the city of Rome, but he was ministering to them and for them by means of intercessory prayer. A.C. Dixon wrote these words, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. But when we rely on prayer, we get what God can do. And prayer, intercessory prayer, is our single greatest weapon in releasing the power of the Holy Spirit to open the hearts of sinners to receive Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Then there's a fifth name here. It is the name Luke, a name we're familiar with because of the gospel that bears his name. And we learn about Luke, the significance of loyalty. If you'll look again in verse 14, uh, Paul says of Luke, our dear friend, Luke, the doctor. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you find that not all the time, but most of the time, when Paul was on his missionary journeys, Luke was a member of his missionary team. Luke had traveled the Roman Empire with the Apostle Paul. Paul had some serious physical infirmities and Luke was Paul's physician. But not only was Luke a physician, but Luke was an excellent historian. We know in the first four verses of Luke chapter one, he sets out uh, for us to how he came about to write the Gospel of Luke. He did careful research. But when it comes to the writing of the book of Acts, the other book that he wrote, well, he didn't have to research that because he was an eyewitness to, all, to most of that. He was an eyewitness to the history of the advance of the Christian church in the first century. And Luke was loyal to Paul. In fact, if you if, don't look there, but in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul is writing there, just in his last imprisonment before he's to be executed, he writes and mentions several names, and he says, only Luke is with me. An early source said this about Luke. He served the Lord without distraction, having neither wife nor children. And at the age of 84, he fell asleep full of the Holy Spirit of God. And he was a dear companion and partner in gospel ministry with the apostle Paul. The sixth name we see in verse 14 is the name Demas. And here we see the tragic significance of falling away. 
If you'll look there again in verse 14, it just says, Luke sends greetings, Demas sends greetings. That's it. There's no word of commendation here about Demas. Now, every other person we've looked at thus far, there's some word of commendation. Luke was a dear friend, Tychius was a faithful minister, Onesimus was a faithful and dear brother, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus' justice were a comfort to Paul, and Epaphras was always resident in prayer for you, but Demas' name stands without comment, without commendation, without praise. Perhaps even at this stage, the Apostle Paul had detected some flaw in Demas' character. And of course, we know from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that Demas turned away from Paul. In fact, Paul put it this way, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. In Paul's greatest hour of trial, when he was awaiting death in prison in Rome, Demas deserted him. How tragic, how very tragic. And why? Because he fell in love with this world. Now, either we live for this world or we live for the world to come when King Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. And there's, there's no evidence that we have in the Bible that Demas denied the faith or apostatized. He just fell in love with this world. This world apparently became more attractive to Demas than, it, than the Lord Jesus Christ was attractive to him. Now, my brother, pastors, there's a warning for all of us here, including myself. Do not presume that you are incapable of forsaking your ministry. Do not presume that you are incapable of doing exactly what Demas did. Worldliness has sidelined many a pastor from finishing the race to which God has called him. Forty years ago this month, the Southern Baptist Convention met in the Superdome in New Orleans. I was there. The pastor's conference, John Bazzano, at that time pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, preached. And he said in his message, when I was a young ministerial student at Oklahoma Baptist University, my father-in-law, who is a Baptist preacher, said to me, John, not one in 10 of your classmates that you're in school with now who've been called to gospel ministry will finish the race. They'll drop out along the way. John Bazzano said, I did not believe that could be the case. So he said, I set out to disprove my father-in-law. He said, I, I wrote in the flyleaf of my Bible just the names of 25 of my fellow ministerial students at Oklahoma Baptist University. He said, 25 years have passed since I did that. And of those 25 names, only three of those 25 individuals are still running the race of gospel ministry. Only one in 10. I think all of us, we just gave ourselves a few moments to reflect back on people we've known across the way who started well, but dropped out along the way. Like Demas, they fell in love with this world. 
can happen to any of us, we must guard our hearts. The seventh name we find here in verse 15 is the name Nympha, the only female name here. And what we learn from Nympha is the significance of hospitality. We learn here that uh, she had a church that assembled in her house. Paul says in verse 15, uh, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, but also greet Nympha and the church at her house. And we know that in the early centuries of the church, uh, Christians didn't have buildings as we have today, and they gathered in homes for their fellowship and their worship and their teaching. And uh, apparently Nympha was a, was a woman of some financial means and she opened her home as an expression of her hospitality. What a significant ministry is the ministry of hospitality. The apostle Peter in uh, 1 Peter 4, 9 says to all of us, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is a vanishing ministry today. But where it is practiced, the fellowship of that church is strengthened. And I might just give a salute to my wife, who is a, a model wife for opening her heart and her home, our home, to countless people across these many years we've served in pastoral ministry. You don't have a big home to be hospitable, you just have a big heart. And for those of you young men who are not yet married, marry well, marry well. Marry a, marry a young lady that has a heart for hospitality. I've said many times before I retired last October to our deacons across the years, if my wife dies, while I'm still your pastor, God forbid, I'll give you 30 days notice and then I'm done. I could not do what God called me to do without my wife. Then there's an eighth name here, Archippus, verse 17. Here we learn the significance of perseverance, not because he persevered. We don't know if he persevered. We just know that Paul said in verse 13, tell Archippus, Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. Perhaps he, like Demas, who walked away from ministry, was in danger of walking away from ministry, and Paul exhorts him to not do that. Now, we all have seasons, do we not, when we want to walk away from ministry? I had them. I'm sure you have them. But the desire to walk away from ministry is not a legitimate reason to walk away from ministry. Only when God releases us from that particular ministry are to we to walk away. You say, well, pastoral ministry is hard. Of course it is. I tell young, young preachers there's only three kinds of churches. Hard, harder, and hardest. Now in God's providence, I had the privilege to pastor what I consider to be the healthiest church in the land. But it was hard because gospel ministry, pastoral ministry doesn't take place on a playground. It takes place on a battlefield. 
And if you, if you and I are faithfully preaching the whole counsel of God and calling sinners to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and lifting high the standards of biblical holiness, the devil will push back against that. And it will not be easy, but it is absolutely necessary that we persevere until God releases us from our assignment or calls us home. I wanna to suggest tonight that these individuals that we've looked at here, these are no ordinary saints. These are not insignificant followers of Christ. Yes, they're not well known like Paul and Peter and John, but they serve faithfully in Paul's missionary team, the place to which they had been assigned. May I also suggest that it is dishonoring to the Lord to say to the Lord, well, I just serve in a little place. I serve in a small place, an insignificant place. I'm just an ordinary pastor. No, there are no ordinary pastors. There are no ordinary pastor's wives. There are no ordinary insignificant servants of God. New Testament scholar Don Carson has written a short autobiography, not autobiography, a short biography of his father, Tom Carson, who served many decades as a Baptist pastor in Canada. He entitled the volume, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. That's the only thing I disagree with about the book. On the last page, D.A. Carson penned these words about his father. Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people in Canada testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator, but there's no text that says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you are a good administrator. His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition, but his children and grandchildren remember his laughter. Only rarely did he break through his pattern of reserve and speak deeply and intimately with his children, but he modeled Christian virtues to them. His own commitments to historic confessionalism were unyielding. In ethics, he was a man of principle, his own ecclesiastical circles were rather small and narrow, but his reading was correspondingly large and expansive. He was not very good at putting people down except on his prayer list. 
When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no mention in parliament, no attention paid by the nation in his hospital room. There was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and he would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne that matters, not because he was a good man or a great man. He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor, but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's the highest tribute to hear the Lord Jesus say, welcome home. My dear pastor, fellow pastor, You do not have an insignificant ministry. You may be in a very isolated place. You may preach to only a handful of people. But whether you preach to five or 5,000, your work is infinitely and eternally significant. The work to which God has called you and me is more significant than what takes place in the Oval Office in the White House. Don't forget it. The work to which God has called you and me is more important than what takes place in the halls of Congress. Don't forget it. The work to which God has called you and me is more significant, far more significant than what takes place United States Supreme Court. Let the legislators make the laws. Let the barons on Wall Street make the money. But let me preach and let you preach and let us preach the glorious gospel of a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And do not, do not, do not, ever let the devil tell you otherwise.